Before we get started with this episode, a brief editorial note. The following was recorded in mid-February 2021, just days prior to the extreme weather and related blackouts in Texas, and FERC's announcement of technical conferences on resource adequacy. So while we do discuss the absence of a capacity market in ERCOT, the potential reliability risks that poses, and our concerns that a crisis might occur, as well as our expectation that FERC would soon be revisiting capacity market issues, the timing and choice of topics were merely coincidental, and we don't directly address the issues that occurred in Texas and Washington, D.C., because, well, they hadn't happened yet. If you want to hear our reactions to those events, be sure to check out the next episode of the podcast. With that, let's get to it. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody, to our 18th episode. It's mid-February, and it's not much different from mid-January, other than Tom Brady won another Super Bowl, and I know exactly three more people who have received the COVID-19 vaccine. However, on the power industry front, big things seem to be brewing. New Jersey has begun an unprecedented discussion to consider a monumental change to how it ensures it's getting the electricity supply at once, and PJM has initiated a series of workshops on re-envisioning its capacity market as well. So we've issued our usual interview this month to do a deep dive into PJM's capacity construct. What is capacity? Why do we need it? And how is it changing? I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me as always is Glenn Thomas, charged up and ready to roll. Glenn, We'll get into the capacity discussion, but first things first, were you surprised to see TB12 get Super Bowl ring number seven? Uh, well, first of all, happy February, Rory. Happy uh, February. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised because, I mean, it's sort of become a Thomas family tradition every February to, to make chicken wings and root against Tom Brady. <laughs> and uh, the wings never disappoint, but our rooting interest in the game always does, except that one time the Eagles won the Super Bowl, of course. But as much as I, you know, love to root against the guy, it's, uh, it's hard not to take your hat off and hand it to him. I tend to agree. He's just such a big game guy. He gets it every time. It's tough to bet against him. So I think in the future, opponents are going to have to take him out on a boat parade around Tampa Bay before the game to, to get Did him you? in condition not to win the game. He so. certainly didn't look like he was in any condition after that. And uh, you, you saw the, the throw of the trophy, oh, right? God. Yeah. Well, so I wasn't completely against it, but I saw the, um, there was some article that day or so after where like the daughter of the guy who designed the trophy was yeah very offended by this and it was causing her sleeping problems and stuff like that and i was kind of like i don't know and they won the trophy they can do what they want with it why was she angry when gronk dented the one that, that they, <laughs> I, I didn't i didn't hear anything about that so i don't well, know think of the think of the abuse the stanley cup takes on a year yeah like this, right exactly I mean, exactly yeah. although i did wonder i didn't i haven't researched this but i did wonder how deep exactly was that water and if they didn't catch it <laughs> Yeah. How, how much of a problem was that going to be? And they would have uh, been. There would have been divers out there pretty fast. Oh there, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. They would have suited up really quickly, I'm sure. All right. Well, then let's get started. Often, in order to talk about where you are, you have to talk about how you got there. Glenn, you've been in this industry for a heck of a lot longer than I have. In fact, you've mentioned previously on this podcast having been around for some of the earliest capacity battles uh, in PJM. Can you give us a brief synopsis from your perspective? Because PJM just gave their perspective the other day, and we'll get to that later, of how we got here. All right. Well, first of all, hats off to PJM for a terrific job at the recent stakeholder meeting, walking through the history of RPM. I thought Craig Glazer did a fabulous job walking through that history and giving his perspective. And if there are any folks listening from PJM, I would highly encourage PJM to go ahead and put that video up on YouTube, re-record it, put it there for folks to have if they ever need a reference point, uh, as well as for folks coming into these markets anew who may not understand and appreciate that history um, from 2005 on. But you know, I'd like to actually start before 2005 and remind folks that 
you know, in the early part of this, this millennium, there were a lot of conversations going on in state capitals um, throughout the PJM footprint about how we were going to transition to competitive markets. And there were a lot of things we were really concerned about then. And one of them was making sure there was enough power on the system to meet the needs of the economy and the consumer. And it was no guarantee, like in the good old days, the vertically integrated regulation, uh, there was a very, very succinct process for going about, you know, putting new generation on the system. The utility had to establish the need. They'd come in and fight about whether the plant was uh, needed. Then they'd fight about how much it would cost. And then they would fight about which consumer group would pay for it. Um, it was inefficient, it was expensive, but at the end of the day, it kept the lights on. And when we moved to competitive markets and put generation in the competitive space, that guarantee, if you will, that security blanket, that warm barn of regulation was going away. So it was very important that we had a mechanism in place to, to basically incent and give us confidence that there would be enough supply there to meet the needs and capacity markets were that answer. You know, and Craig talked about some of the early problems with the capacity market. There were early problems with the capacity market. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I've said many times on this podcast, one of my goals when I came to the commission in 2001 was to try to fix the capacity market. Um, you know, so we're still working on it 20 years later, but it's, it's, it's evolved dramatically and largely kept the lights on. And we should be blessed in PJM that we have, you know, the reserve margins we do, particularly as I look at you know, California that ran out of power this summer, Texas, which just uh, just recently, as a result of cold weather events, uh, they 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 got real close to the edge. And you know, who knows? By the time folks listen to this, they may have crossed the edge and had to to jump dump some load in order to keep the lights on. So um, reliability is not guaranteed, and RPM has been a pretty dang successful mechanism for making sure there's enough steel in the ground. So. But again, I thought PJM did a great job walking through from 2005 on, walking through the, you know, various ups and downs, particularly as it relates to uh, the minimum offer price rule and efforts to influence the market outcomes in one way or another. And uh, we got we got an interesting road ahead, that's for sure. Yeah, I thought the discussion about Moper and kind of where the minimum offer price rule came from and where it's gone, it has changed over time. And um, I, th I guess that kind of gives some of the context behind why there has been such a long debate and discussion over what this is. It's not set in stone as to what everyone thinks it should be doing. Anytime something changes, it automatically uh, implies that it could change again. And so I think there's a lot of thought that, well, we already changed this once or twice before. We can certainly continue to move things around. I mean, there obviously, yeah, there have been a lot of changes, but the, the fundamental economic rule and, and challenge presented or, or attempted to be addressed by the MOPR hasn't changed. And, you know, that is, you know, subsidizing uneconomic units so that you, those units can participate in the market on a, on a different playing field from those units that are not subsidized erodes the marketplace. I mean, that's sort of the fundamental economic principle underlying it. And the, what has changed is the format of that subsidized um, that subsidized capacity. In the 2011 timeframe, we were talking about problems created by the subsidization of new natural gas plants, okay? Mm -hmm. And we created a MOPR to design to address that. Now we're talking about problems caused by the subsidization of you know, 40 to 50 year old nuclear plants and uh, storage new entrants and renewable new entrants as well as offshore wind. So. Like I said, the economic principle has been the same, and and it's real. I mean, you know, in those early days of you know the RPM settlements going back to 2005, six, and seven, um, the concern was that that the load side would exercise what was called monopsony power to reduce the overall clearing price, and the, the proposition was pretty straightforward. Hey, if we spend a billion dollars to build a new plant that crashes the price of the market and saves us $5 billion, that billion dollars is well spent because we're ahead $4 billion, okay? Right. But what you've done is you've manipulated the market. If somebody did that on the sell side, you, you, they'd go to jail, right? If, 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 if suppliers withheld capacity in order to inflate the price, which is like the reverse, the mirror image of this 
this proposition, uh, like I said, those suppliers would probably go to jail. This was an attempt to address the other side of that. But what, like I said, what has changed is, is, is the form of that subsidization on economic uh, entry and the motivation. Like I said, in 2011, uh, there were two states that were subsidizing new natural gas plants because they thought they would never ever be built under the current markets construct. You know, now the subsidization has taken on a more environmental flavor, but the fundamental economic challenge is still the same. When we're talking about buyer side market power, we're talking about net buyer entities, entities that also sell and, and that would potentially be putting in self-supply at less than a competitive level. We're talking about buyer net buyers who are buyers and sellers and could use their selling side to manipulate the market? Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, in, in New Jersey and Maryland, we're pretty transparent about that. And like I said, the 2011 timeframe, and they, they were, they were actually arguing the reason we want to subsidize these plants is so we can, we can suppress the rest of the capacity market prices and save our consumers money. That was, that was a motivation on the record, you know, that was there in front of both those commissions at the time. And you look at some of the advocacy you know, some of the consumer groups at the time, they were supporting some of these efforts of New Jersey and Maryland to subsidize those plants because, you know, they saw an opportunity to save consumers money in the, in the short run. As, as I firmly believe, and I think as those consumer groups have come to appreciate over the long run, it doesn't save consumers money because it erodes those market signals that have been so effective. But, you know, these were, you know, 2010, 2011, that was more in the early stages of RPM. I think now that RPMs has become a little bit more accepted, these consumer groups have realized that, you know, going down the primrose path of subsidization ends in a bad spot because what happens is you end up with a market that relies on subsidization rather than economic signals. And at the end of the day, those consumers, they, they pay more, they, technology is stifled. And at the end of the day, you're, 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 you're supporting resources that are politically favored other than, you know, at the expense of those that may be in the best interest of consumers. We have heard the IMM repeat the mantra over and over again that subsidies are a slippery slope. As I mentioned earlier, PJM just this month started a four-part series of workshops on essentially re-envisioning their capacity market. During the first session, staff provided their own take and gave you, Glenn, a, a shout out, I might add, on the history of the market did any of that not jibe with your recollections? You kind of um, congratulated Craig on his presentation, but were there any parts of that that you think the record needs to be set straight? Like I said, I thought Craig did a, a really good job. It's a challenge um, for sure. They, 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 they should know it's a challenge. And I think hopefully, you know, they asked for a lot of stakeholder feedback. We heard Manu on last week's or month's podcast talk about his desire to have an open stakeholder process and receive a lot of input from stakeholders. I think they are going to see, receive a lot of input, but I would encourage PJM to examine their own filings on this very issue because it's pretty clear from their advocacy over the last 15 years, they know and recognize that this is a problem. Yeah, let me dig into that for a second there because I, I did note, and I put this in our summary of the workshop, and consumer advocates mentioned that they wanted to maintain competition as a driver for innovation in the market. And staff fully agreed with that to the extent we can preserve that, which to me didn't exactly sound like a full-throated defense, particularly given the, you know, the quotes that you, you've just noted from previous filings. Do you feel like they have moved away from some of that strong defense of the conceptual part of markets and competition? I think that's to be determined. And I, I agree with your reaction to some of the statements that you might have heard uh, at that meeting that it's like, huh, you know, is this a change in direction for PJM? I certainly hope not because the competitive markets in, in PJM have been enormously successful. You know, in many respects, PJM has been the role model that many RTOs have aspired to. I, I, I was concerned that they defined, quote unquote, the problem as the possibility that state consumers may pay twice for capacity. If, if that's the problem, they don't appreciate, you know, the scope of the issue. The problem is much 
um, much more difficult to define. And defining it that narrowly does not recognize, you know, the broader context of the problem, which is, you know, how do you manage uneconomic but subsidized resources in a competitive market? That is, that is the challenge. It's not about consumers paying twice. That's a consequence of some policy decisions. The challenge is much broader than that. And PJM has to appreciate that if, if to your point, Rory, they're gonna remain committed to competitive markets. And I, I do believe the states still want competitive markets. I mean, if nothing, the last year has proven to, to me at least that states aren't ready just to abandon ship on competitive markets. They like the reliability benefits. They know and understand and appreciate what has happened on price. They've seen the environmental improvement. You know, they, they don't want responsibility for reliability. They don't want to be answering the questions that California regulators are answering right now and Texas regulators may be called to answer. They, they like a lot of what they see here. They just have to answer these state statutes um, that, that were constructed in certain ways. And that's, that's the challenge. So yeah, I think time will tell. Uh, hopefully PJM hears the message loud and clear that markets, they should do a lot more than preserve markets to the extent possible. They should make sure that these markets are thriving at the end of the day, because ultimately that's, I think, what there's broad agreement on in a lot of quarters. Well, you, you mentioned PJM's goals and they sort of outlined these as, uh, I, I believe they called them um, guiding principles that they wanted to uh, focus on and address with this uh, 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 re-envisioning. One of the, your P3 members, the, the group that you represent on a daily basis, noted that there was no principle for um, providing the opportunity for generators to get a return on their investment. And then there was this kind of back and forth where PJM was like, yeah, we, 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 we know that. What do you recommend that looked like? Which um, was another sort of back and forth that I was a little surprised to hear the way that uh, it occurred. I mean, did you, do you have a suggestion for what that principle should look like? Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty simple. I mean, I think it's, you know, a capacity mark. I mean, and this is like, Basically, PJM's own words, a capacity market will not be able to produce, you know, the need investment to serve load reliably if a subset of suppliers is allowed to bid non-competitively to suppress market clearing prices. I mean, that's, that's the principle. Um, you, you just have to manage this issue. And, and I'm not here pounding the table that says either Moper is perfect or Moper is the only answer. Um, Moper is the tool that has evolved into the tool that is used to address these challenges. But if there's a better mousetrap out there, you know, there's a, there's a good chunk of the stakeholder community that would be willing to listen to those alternatives. But, you know, turning a blind eye and just saying, there's a whole subset of suppliers that should be able to bid non-competitively because they're getting a state subsidy, you know, that, that gets you right back to Talent v. Hughes and it gets you right back to 2005 when the concerns were there about, you know, buy side market power. So yeah, I think it, it is concerning. Now that said, we, we know that FERC, the commission has changed, their focus has changed uh, fairly significantly since President Biden took office and um, the new chairman, Commissioner Glick, has, has made some pretty definitive comments on, on PJM's capacity market and has called, I believe, the, the MOPR basically a bailout of fossil generation. How does that square for you with the guiding principle that you're noting here, uh, that we should be eliminating market suppressing actions when the, the, the mechanism that's intended to do this, we're getting very strong signals from the regulator that they're, they're, not, they're not pleased with it? Yeah. And I mean, as we've talked about on this podcast before, you know, I've always been amazed the difference that you know, one commissioner can make in the complexion of any regulatory commission, whether it's state or FERC or what have you. And, you know, there's been some very significant changes at FERC in the last several months. Like you said, we have a new chairman and we have two new commissioners. Uh, commissioner Christie, I've known for a long, long time. You know, he comes from the states. You know, you listen to him in every opportunity. He, he, he glows about his belief in state regulatory commissions and state regulatory bodies as laboratories of democracy. He's a big states guy. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Commissioner Clements, who I 
who I don't know as well, but I've certainly read and listened to her a fair amount. And, you know, she brings a very different perspective. You know, she, she comes from a, um, a more environmental perspective, but she's very thoughtful. And, you know, all these commissioners are bound by the Federal Power Act. But yeah, I mean, I think it's reasonable to anticipate, particularly given the, uh, given the rhetoric surrounding this issue, that this new commission will take a look at these issues. And, you know, we may see some actions at some open meetings coming up here. And I fully anticipate that this is going to be a big conversation at FERC as well. You know, what my hope would be is that FERC allows PJM some space to take a shot at this first. And I think there's a lot of stakeholders that are willing to roll up their sleeves and try to work on this. I, like I said, I don't think, you know, there's going to be a lot of folks pounding the table saying, you know, this MOPR is the perfect one and it needs to be sustained. What I do think folks will be pounding the table on saying, hey, whatever we come up with here, we have to address this issue of non-competitive bidders in capacity auctions. And if there's a, like I said, a better tool to do that, let's, let's go ahead and find it. Um, let's go ahead and find it. This, this change that, that is going on, uh, obviously, like I said, has kind of occurred or has begun occurring since President Biden took office, named Commissioner Glick as the chairman. They have put out statements and actions that he and uh, you mentioned new Commissioner Clements have made. Um, they remain the minority on the commission, but they're absolutely driving policy. And one of the ways that we're seeing that is I, we just saw the announcement recently about putting together a new environmental justice office. Yeah. Did you, how big of a change in scope is that? Uh, maybe not scope as much focus, right? Okay. Um, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, yeah and, and the chairman, you know, the chair of the commission has a lot of discretion and, and the chair is the bully pulpit, right? The chair sets the agenda and that's the prerogative of the chair. I recently sat through the the virtual NARUC meeting for, for the winter meetings and, um, it was pretty clear they had several speakers on there from the administration and climate and justice are going to be big priorities of the administration throughout the government. And that includes the energy space. So I think what you'll see is actions from FERC that are consistent with the broader agenda of the administration. Like I said, the folks at DOE, they created an office for justice as well, uh, the senior level in the Department of Energy. And we're seeing that in FERC. I think what the more fascinating aspect of this discussion is going to be how this manifests itself in action and how this sort of creeps into FERC policy as well as FERC decision-making. Because, you know, environmental justice is not a new issue. In fact, I remember dealing with environmental justice issues way back in the 1990s in the Ridge administration. It's not a new issue. It's a very challenging issue. It gets real tricky real fast and it will be, like I said, very interesting to see how this, that this manifests itself in commission action. And if it ends up in commission orders, that's obviously something that could be appealed to the courts. And anything, you know, FERC does in that regard, they're going to have to be prepared to possibly defend, especially if it involves, as I think you alluded to, the denial of a permit for a pipeline, which folks have invested billions of dollars in. So to your point about the, the local issue and how sticky that can be, I remember a few years ago, there was a big debate in Virginia about they wanted to cite a new transmission line, uh, the Haymarket line, and it, it was um, originally planned to go through a historically black community. And there was a lot of fervor out there to not impact the community and, and um and this was sort of the, an environmental justice or more of a, maybe even more of a social justice issue to find a way to root around this uh, community to preserve the historical legacy there. And um, it was actually a really long process to, to figure out. And I think it ended up being significantly more expensive because they, if I remember correctly, they, they eventually put it underground at, at a much higher cost. But it was a very long, um, uh, long and nuanced process to figure out how to do this that I believe they eventually successfully figured it out. But do you, 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 we mentioned their gas pipelines. Do you think that will we ever see a gas pipeline permitted again? Yes. I, I think we will, but I think you hit the nail on the head, and that is what it probably means is it, it'll take longer, it'll be more expensive, and there'll probably be a lot fewer projects coming forward just because 
folks won't want to endure that process and that expense. It becomes a much riskier proposition. So yeah. I think that's probably the end result of this. And maybe things get rerouted. Maybe things, you know, go underground. Maybe things, you know, you know. I used to do some transportation work in, in state government too. And, you know, whenever there was a controversial highway project, the solution always was sound walls, right? Uh, know, let's build these sound walls at a, yeah. a million dollars a mile and that'll keep the local community happy. I mean, they would fight, fight, fight. And then they realized they were going to lose. All right, give us sound walls. And that's, I think, probably a little bit of what we'll see happening with these pipeline projects. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd be hard pressed not to acknowledge that many of these changes with, within PJM and its federal regulator have been driven by years of effort and noise put in at the state level. As far as my experience runs, New Jersey has always led that. I wrote a story about the New Jersey um, BPU president, Fior Deliso, threatening to extricate the J uh, from PJM, the New Jersey. And that, to me at least, really seemed to be the icing on the cake of state dissatisfaction with the way PJM was being run. And then we had the green hat default, uh, which lost members and ultimately consumers, it should be noted. Hundreds of millions of dollars, putting the writing on the wall that everyone to agree it was time to clean house at PJM. I mean, obviously, there have been other states doing stuff, but where do you see all of this emanating from? Yeah, and I mean, PJM is, I mean, it has 13 states in the District of Columbia. It has New Jersey and West Virginia. It has Maryland and Kentucky. It has Pennsylvania and Ohio. It has Illinois. I mean, these are very politically diverse states uh, that are all married together being in the same transmission system. This is, I mean, it's, it's, it's challenging waters for sure. And to a large extent, PJM has done a pretty good job keeping the benefits of market despite that political diversity. And I think every state in the PJM footprint, if asked the question, you know, have you benefited from being in PJM? The answer will be yes. And the key is to making sure that that answer stays in place. The challenge is there's some states that have chosen, you know, um, to, to meet their policy goals through means that are tough to reconcile with the wholesale market. So you mentioned New Jersey. Yes, New Jersey tried LCAP. Uh, LCAP ultimately got invalidated by the Supreme Court of the United States. And, and thank God for New Jersey, it did, because at least two of the three plants that got LCAP contracts were constructed. They were constructed without subsidies and had that LCAP program stayed in place. Right now, New Jersey ratepayers would probably have about a half a billion dollars fewer in their pocket. So plants were built, reliability was maintained, promoted, and the people saved money. So now the New Jersey issue is offshore wind, and it's it's kind of similar. I mean, offshore wind is a very expensive proposition. I've, I've made no secret of my opinions that, you know, for what people are paying for offshore wind versus what they're getting, it's it's a high, high, high price for carbon-free electricity. And the people in New Jersey and Maryland are going to be paying off those offshore wind costs well past 2050. I mean, these are the type of contracts that generators were entering to, into in the 70s. So I don't, th I don't think I would say New Jersey is driving it. I think what I would say is every state has priorities. It just seems that maybe New Jersey has, at least on two, if not three occasions in the last 10 years, you know, challenged some of these underlying principles. But other states have their issues as well. So, yeah, well... We, we've just seen we've seen a lot of efforts at states to find ways to have their policy interests integrated into the you know the the capacity markets at PJM and 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 um, sort of into that that competitive framework. Uh, we've seen you know New Jersey is is also one of three states in PJM that implemented programs to funnel taxpayer money into in-state nuclear plants that right. were complaining that they hadn't been receiving enough money from PJM's capacity market. You know, so, so these were the other two states, of course, were Ohio and Illinois. Um, 
And the argument was, well, we don't want these plants to close, but the, the market isn't providing us with what we need. So states sort of came in and found based on Hughes v. Talon, which was Maryland's effort to impact the, uh, the capacity market, which was ultimately struck down by the, the Supreme Court. But you know, this, these were all these, all these different sort of state efforts to impact the market and um, you know, ob- obviously, they've they've they in in and of themselves have been signaling to PJM that you're not doing what we need you to do. Uh, and then there has been more direct communication, like I mentioned the article that that I wrote about um, President Fiordaliso in in New Jersey openly coming out and basically saying, well, we might leave PJM if they don't they don't give us what we want. Uh, we've had other states imply the same thing, and then there's been this response from PJM to become more responsive to state interests. Let's loop back to New Jersey for a minute and talk about their newest idea, the integrated clean capacity market. When reading through it, it reminded me a lot of the market monitor's proposal in the ELCC issue. That's the uh, effective load carrying capability discussion that's going on at PJM currently to figure out how to allocate capacity value for intermittent and limited duration resources, ones that don't run 24-7 and therefore don't have the same assurance value as resources that can run at any point um, and remain running uh, as long as needed. The market monitor's proposal in the ELCC issue created this sort of co-optimized auction that procured the homogenous capacity, quote unquote, commodity, but then also addressed demands for another attribute. In the ELCC case, it was in fact ELCC, but for New Jersey, it's more about this renewable generation. What, what do you make of it, Glenn? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'd, I'd like to give a shout out to, to New Jersey and the, the staff in New Jersey, Abe Silverman and his team over there for putting putting another idea on the table for folks to, to think about and chew on. And what I what I like at a high level about the conversation is if you remember where we were a year ago, uh, December of 2019 was the quote unquote big moper order. And a lot of folks in January and February of 2020, pre-pandemic, New Jersey and Maryland, you know, among the forefront, but other states as well, we're talking about FRR. I think hopefully we've moved past the FRR conversation and now we're talking about ideas that can, can maybe help uh, states meet some of the clean energy goals within the market. And it, there, there is no simple answer to any of this. If, if there was a simple answer, we would have found it by now. But what New Jersey has done is put put an idea on the table for folks to chew on. And I think folks are, are doing exactly that. I think what we're seeing is a recognition from New Jersey that, like I mentioned, there's benefits to market on the reliability front, on the price front. You know, how do we capture those market dynamics for the benefit of the clean energy agenda? Is, is this the perfect answer? I, I think we're going to get a lot of discussions. They're having a technical conference coming up on that a little later this month. Um, it's not a simple proposal by any means. Uh, like I said, it's an attempt to you know, have a capacity auction, a single auction that clears both uh, traditional capacity, if you will, and clean capacity in a way that, that produces a reliable outcome. At a high level, those concepts sound intriguing, but the details matter and the details still quite candidly need to be fleshed out and better understood. You know, what New Jersey has put on the table is a pretty fundamental evolution in, in how that capacity market would be set up. And it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time just to work through the nuances. But like I said, I think it's a better conversation than the FRR conversation, which pulls New Jersey out of the, the capacity markets. And I should, I should say, too, when we talk about these state dynamics in general, I mean, as you mentioned, Maury, states, states, these RTOs are voluntary organizations. States have the ability to take their wires and go home at any point. Could it be tricky to do so? Absolutely. Would you lose a lot of benefits that you've, you've accrued? Absolutely. Will your consumers ultimately pen, pay more? I think you probably count on it. But, you know, states ultimately have that ability. But I, I appreciate what New Jersey is trying to do here. And I know Maryland's doing the same. And 
and some other states are working. Illinois certainly has some ideas that they're, they're working on right now. I really appreciate the efforts of those states to try to find some solutions here. I don't know if they're ultimately going to materialize. We got a lot of work to do, but we're having conversations in the right area. And the, the intellectual firepower that's been dedicated to these questions is enormous. And um, I think it's terrific. Yeah, you mentioned Ohio there. Obviously, there's some some fallout that continues from their actions. Then in Illinois, we've got the Clean Energy Jobs Act or a new iteration of the Clean Energy Jobs Act. This time doesn't have the support of Exelon like the original um, version did. And Exelon's obviously one of the major owners of nuclear generation in Illinois. So there's a there's a lot of moving parts here is really what I'm getting at. And makes it really, really difficult to predict. But Glenn, I'm still going to put you on the spot. Where do you foresee this ending up? I mean, let's say we get to the end of the Biden administration. What does the capacity market in PJM look like? Do you have any broad predictions? Oh, boy, it's always tricky. I mean, first of all, let me mention Ohio real quickly, because I think that developments in Ohio are kind of interesting, because Obviously, First Energy, when they owned the nuclear facilities in Ohio, pushed very hard for subsidies for those nuclear facilities. Um, they contended those plants were uneconomic, that they would close if they didn't get the subsidies, and they pushed very, very hard to get them in Illinois, or excuse me, Ohio. And of course, we've covered on this podcast the scandal that surrounded that and what have you. But fast forward a year later or whatever it's been, and right now, Energy Harbor in Ohio is actually not opposing, and some people are even telling me supporting efforts to repeal the subsidies that are awarded to them uh, in House Bill 6 for their nuclear facilities. And a couple things have happened. One, the MOPR happened. And I think the new owners of these plants, Energy Harbor, uh, are realizing that the subsidy, uh, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, as, as, as I think Manu said on the last podcast. So they're realizing that they can forego the subsidies in order to not have the MOPR apply to them and be in a better financial position. So in that respect, you know, the MOPR could be saving Ohio consumers $150 million a year uh, if those nuclear subsidies eventually get repealed, which I suspect they will, particularly now that the owners of the plants are saying they don't need the subsidy. The other thing that's happened in Ohio, and I think this is an instructive lesson for Illinois and and New Jersey, is there's new owners of those nuclear facilities now in that state. And it's being reported out there pretty publicly that they're operating those plants much more efficiently. So uh, it begs the question that are there efficiencies that can be gained, you know, for these nuclear facilities under different ownership structures? And, you know, we've seen examples of that. And uh, Ohio may be a pretty good testament to that. So I think that's kind of an interesting story coming out of there. Now to get to your question on the prediction of the capacity markets, I don't think capacity goes away. It's too important a commodity. I don't see PJM going to an energy-only market. I also don't see PJM abandoning the capacity market. Consumers like it. They like the predictability. Suppliers like it. They like being able to see forward prices. It's been a tool that's pretty effective. I think there's going to be some changes to it for sure. Um, Some of them will be pretty technical. I think the MOPR will evolve. But at the end of the day, I think these capacity markets are so ingrained in these markets that you know, from time to time, you know, folks will, you know, raise their hand and say, hey, let's try something, you know, different. But like I said, I think the core elements uh, of the capacity market and PJM are appreciated by the stakeholder community. I think, uh, you know, certainly PJM appreciates the reliability that it provides, the predictability it provides. And, like I said, I think it's going to take a different flavor. And this ELCC that you mentioned, or is going to be a critical part of the equation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the you look at the PJMQ, a lot of renewables, a lot of wind storage, a lot of uh, solar coming into the market. We're not building new coal or nuclear, and the amount of gas coming in the market is uh, relatively small compared to the amount of other resources coming in. It's going to be very important to really get a good grasp on the actual reliability capabilities of these resources and make sure not only there's enough of them uh, to keep the lights on during normal times, but making sure there's enough backup capacity there when times are stressed. Because uh, like I said, we, we have examples in California and unfortunately I think we're gonna have examples from Texas of what the consequence of not having enough power on the grid are. We have heard some proposals to move to that model in, in PJM, but to your point, it seems like they are 
likely to fall on mostly deaf ears. Well, Glenn, I feel like that was a pretty good roundup of what's going on in PJM regarding the capacity market. How about we move on to rapid fire? And as you know, usually we throw a bunch of loaded questions at our interview guests, but since we don't have an interview subject this month, why don't we fire loaded questions at each other? Yeah, and, and, and I should say that Rory and I have not provided these questions to each other ahead of time. Good point. I'm going to be hearing the ones fired at me for the first time, and he's going to be hearing the, the ones fired at him. So this will be interesting. All right, here you go. Go for it. So here's a softball. Okay. You have tweeted about your affection for Calvin and Hobbes. Oh. Are you more Calvin or more Hobbes, and which one do you consider more of a role model? Oh, so I guess this is the um, this is the effect of, of growing up. I mean, obviously, when I was a when I was younger and first got into Calvin and Hobbes, it was 100% Calvin. As I have grown older, I have realized and become significantly more appreciative of the Hobbes aspect of uh, the dichotomy there. And, uh, and I find his wry wit uh, even more humorous. So uh, I, I guess at this point, I have to call myself a Hobbes guy, but you know, I, I, I love him either way. I forgot that I had ever tweeted about that. That's uh, I'm glad I did. I, well, just, <laughs> I put a put a stake in the ground there. Uh, that's definitely yes, you did. So good. all right, good answer. Yeah, Cal, I love Calvin Hobbes too. By the way, I think I mean I I remember reading them all through college, and yeah, they're they're, they're fantastic. So good. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Um, all right, here's your first one. Uh, I don't know how much of a softball this is. Do you think Big Ben will be back next year, and do you want him back? The answer to both is yes. Okay. Yeah, I I, th- I think he will be back. I mean, in fact, there's news reports out that they're re- redoing his contract. He lost his center, which um, is I saw hurts. Pouncey I mean, retired. Mark, yeah, yeah, Pouncey Pouncey was uh, Pouncey was a, a a great teammate of his and a great influence. And uh, but I think Ben wants one more shot at it. I think this I think this will be his last year though, 2021. I think he has one more run at it. I think uh, the, last the year is more... a stealer or last year, last year. I think, okay. he, I think, I don't think he plays anywhere else. I don't okay. think he, he, he does a, you know, Tom Brady or a, a Phillip rivers or, okay. or something like that. I think that he retires as a stealer. I think he takes one more run at it. I think the more interesting question is going to be who are the pieces around him? You know, do they resign James Connor at running back? Do they resign Juju Smith at wide receiver? Uh, they now have a huge hole to feel fill on the offensive line with Pouncey. They're also probably losing Villanueva, the left tackle. So, mm, um, and which is a big one, right? Yeah. Exactly. So running back center, left tackle and wide receiver are probably the four most important complementary positions to mm-hmm. any quarterback. Yeah. And there's big questions at each. So, but they're going to have a great defense. I mean, the, their defense is, is going to be terrific. Uh, they got uh, Devin Bush coming back from injury. You know, they got a draft and they always do well in the draft. But uh, yeah, I think he does come back. I'd love to have him back for one more shot. But I think after that, we're headed for transition in Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. Looks like uh, reports are that the, the Watt brothers may reunite. How in, about that? In the Steel City. So yeah, that would I don't think really that happens, by the way. I do no? not think that. No, I, they, I mean, the Steelers are pretty good on the, the defensive line. And um, unless JJ's willing to pay play for a pretty low number. Yeah, that's the only I, thing. I, yeah, I think they're going to have to put, like I said, they're going to have to invest in that offensive line and the offense, not in the defense. So, all right. Well, I, I got a football-related question to fire right. you for your next one. All right. Before your fiancé said yes, did she understand that in sickness and in health extends to Sunday afternoons in the fall <laughs> as the future spouse of a Washington football team fan? Well, she knew of my... Uh, so, so, so I guess the direct answer is no. Um, she, <laughs> she knew before that of my propensity to play rugby, which has a significantly more uh, in sickness and in health ratio uh, 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 concern. So that was already on the table, um, sort of. And that was always Saturday afternoons. So it was kind of a given that Sunday afternoons might uh, might already be uh, <laughs> tough sledding. Uh, tough sledding. Yeah, that's a great way to, to describe it. All right, my second one. Uh, we see a lot of FERC commissioners coming in from state commissions. New Commissioner Mark Christie is an example from Virginia. You chaired Pennsylvania's PUC. Did you ever have FERC aspirations? Um, 
I never had FERC aspirations. Um, there, there was actually a window where I considered it, but we were just at a spot with, uh, and, and so many stars have to line up to get yourself on FERC. I mean, political stars, there has to be an opening. You know, you have to, you know, have the juice in the White House and in the Senate. And I had a window towards the end of my commissionership where, you know, if it was something I wanted, I might have been able to put the pieces together to, to take a run at it. But at that point, I was just in a spot with, you know, my family. We, were, we had a very young family at the time. It just, uh, it just didn't make a lot of sense. So, you know, my hat's off to all the folks who have made the transition. As you mentioned, there's numerous ones. I mean, Tony Clark, Colette Honorable, Rob Powelson, like you mentioned, uh, Commissioner Christie. I'm probably forgetting somebody I really shouldn't in that <laughs> list. But, um, oh, well, Nora Burnell, Pat Woods. Um, there's been numerous folks who, who have done it and done it successfully. I think state commissions are tremendous training grounds for FERC commissioners. Uh, I love seeing state commissioners move up, up to FERC because they bring the, uh, you know, the knowledge and appreciation of the former roles up there. So, uh, yeah, but it was never something that, that, uh, that, that just the, the, the stars never really lined up for me to take that run. Okay, uh, a little bit of a, a softer one. What's the uh, the funniest or the most entertaining thing you have ever seen at a PJM meeting? Oh, um, well, there's there's a couple. Uh, one is more inside PJM baseball, I suppose. If you've ever been to uh, PJM meetings, there's a, a group of uh, older gentlemen who kind of sit in the back and uh, one of those guys just loves his M&Ms and um, they call it the, uh, the wheel of diabetes at, at PJM, <laughs> um, where after lunch, they'll bring out this candy wheel that yep, has, yep. has like two types of M&Ms and, and Reese's just, you know, you can have more candy than uh, the day after Halloween. And uh, there's a the group back there, uh, one guy who just loves his M&Ms and you can, you can bet. Like, almost like clockwork, you get in the meeting after lunch and just look over there and there will be a stack of M&Ms. Uh, he's already got himself <laughs> set up for the afternoon meeting. So, That's awesome. So George, uh, I don't know if you listen to the podcast or not, but uh, uh, I, will, I will be looking for that once we eventually get back in. <laughs> the wheel of diabetes, I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. I feel like we might have actually talked about this before, so it's probably a bit of a softball, but I will bring it up anyway. You know, um, after their terms in office expire, commissioners often seem to stick to one of the utilities they were involved with. What made you choose electricity? Yeah. Um, remember that quote from Bonnie and Clyde, why do you why do you rob banks? Yeah. That's where the, that's where the money is. Yeah. Um, I kind of viewed PJM issues as the same way. I mean, when you, and I, it, the, it really occurred to me when I was a commissioner, actually, when I was looking at a typical consumer bill and realizing about two thirds of the charges my consumers were paying were coming from charges that came from PJM. I realized I got to understand this PJM thing a lot better. So that's kind of how, how it started for me. I would, I would point out that that two thirds number has actually come down pretty dramatically and distribution has taken up a bigger chunk of uh, consumers bills since then. But that, that was the impetus for it. I just really, um, I really realized early that I need to understand PJM better. Uh, I actually took on some leadership roles while at the commission on PJM issues. I was the one that was tasked to come up with the organizational structure for OPSI, you know, way back when. You know, we were doing a lot in the standard market design discussions and whatever. And, and plus, I found the issues interesting, right? And this back to the point I made earlier in the podcast, this was the big issue, right? How are we going to keep the lights on in a competitive marketplace? And how are we going to keep prices low in a competitive marketplace? Those are the two biggest challenges. And um, PJM had the answers. So uh, that's why I gravitated towards PJM issues. All right. Uh, all right. So I got a trivia question for you. Oh. Indianapolis head coach Frank Wright, mm -hmm. Super Bowl quarterback Kerry Collins, mm -hmm. President James Buchanan. I, I know where this is headed. And Sam Bowie, the NBA center who was drafted ahead of Michael Jordan. Yeah. What do you have in common with all four of these notable men? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go with, this may be a little bit of a cop-out, but I'm going to say they're all from the... Amish country area of no, central. They're all from Lebanon County. Are they all originally from Lebanon County? Uh, according to the website. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. 
Who do you, who do you think wasn't? Well, so Buchanan's uh, like presidential estate and everything is in Lancaster County. Uh, Correct. So I guess I just assumed that he was originally from Lancaster. And um, oh yeah, no, Reich did go to Cedar Crest. I did know that. Uh, and that is, uh, that's the, the big high school in Eastern Lebanon County. So uh, I did know that, I guess. Uh, yeah, no, okay. All right. Yeah, Buchanan was the only one that I, I didn't think was originally from Lebanon County. Well, he you know, actually, he actually was the first member of the Lebanon County Bar Association. Wow. James wow. Buchanan. So there you Man, go. Big things from Lebanon County, yep. Pennsylvania. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. So in the Mount Rushmore of like Lebanon County, we're going to have to put you up there and you're going to have to pick one of those, you know, three of the four of those folks. I'm working on it and I'll, <laughs> I'm trying to get into the, to the conversation there. We'll see. Could be a while. <laughs> yep. All right. Does PJM join Reggie? Or I'm sorry. Is PJM? No. Does, <laughs> yeah. PJM does not join Right. Me. Does PA join Reggie? That's going to be up to the next governor to decide. Uh, we have a gubernatorial election in 2022. I think the current governor is going to do everything in his power to put Pennsylvania on the path to being in Reggie. Whether he can complete that before he leaves office, I think is 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 tough to predict. Um, I think I think those in opposition in the legislatures can put up enough roadblocks uh, that it might be challenging for him to put that in place before he leaves. But before then, about a year from now, we're going to have a primary in the Democratic race for governor of Pennsylvania. And it's going to be very interesting to see how the Democrats position themselves on this issue, because um, it's a very supporting Reggie is going to be a very challenging proposition everywhere in Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia and the Collar County. So uh, tell me who the next governor of Pennsylvania is, and I can give you a, probably a more precise answer. <laughs> Better on idea. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's rip through the, the remainder of this, Glenn. Moving on to our two minutes. You know the, the drill here. You get two minutes to give unsolicited advice to anyone, anywhere about anything. Who do you got this month? Yeah, we've been kind of dancing around this one all podcast, but my advice this month is going to be to the OPSI commissioners, uh, the organization of PJM states and the state commissions, state commissioners in the organization of PJM states. And my advice is, as it relates to this capacity discussions we're about to enter into, be engaged, be constructive, and be thoughtful. And I've said it many times, I have enormous respect for state policymakers. As we talked, I got my start in this business as an energy advisor to a governor, I was then a public utility commissioner. Craig Glazer talked a lot about the roots of RPM. You know, those were my personal roots. I had a law school professor that drilled into me the 10th Amendment. I think he spent six weeks just on the 10th Amendment alone. Um, and I understand how challenging it can be in a federally regulated wholesale market when different states have different objectives. Markets like democracy are not always easy, but an enormous amount of collective good can be accomplished. If states can work together and be willing to be thoughtful, engaged, and constructive. Please don't enter these policy debates with a my, my way or highway attitude. That's not going to get anywhere good. Be open to the idea that some of your state policies may need to be amended to accommodate the wholesale market so the benefits of wholesale markets can continue to be enjoyed by your state and your region. I get very troubled when I hear the notion that state policies should be accommodated without any notion of accountability of those policies to the parameters of the wholesale market. We talked about New Jersey's LCAP program in the 2011, which gave subsidies to three new natural gas plants in New Jersey. And that was not a state policy that should have been accommodated by the wholesale markets by PJM, and it took a Supreme Court decision to validate the results. There is a line past which state policies should not be accommodated. Let's work together to draw that line. And I'm not saying where the line is currently drawn is appropriate and should be preserved, but let's not pretend that no line should exist at all. Again, I can't emphasize enough how much I respect the work that state regulators do. You have to answer to consumers, you have to answer to governors, and you have to answer to state legislators. It's not easy and there's not a lot of time left uh, you know, right now under the current circumstances for dealing with these wholesale market issues. You have enough on your plate with your state level responsibilities. But I beg you as it relates to these wholesale markets, do not be dogmatic. 
do not demand that every single state policy must be accommodated. At the end of the day, your consumers will be paying more and your governors and legislators will be asking, why didn't you warn us? So I get back to my original advice, be engaged, be constructive and be thoughtful. And by all means, if you have any questions, give me a call. Thanks, Rory. <laughs> a last bit, I like that, yes. All right, my two minutes, uh, I'll be quick with these two. And, and this, is, um, this is directed at young CEOs of companies. And this came up as I've just seen, been following the news recently and it's been hard not to see this. In the past few months, we've had a, watched a few young CEOs crash and burn trying to manage crises. One is local, Andre Duration is the 22-year-old CEO of Philly Fighting COVID, a company that won a bid to distribute COVID vaccines in Philly and then unceremoniously had that bid stripped away after concerns about impropriety bubbled up. He then held a press conference in the lobby of his apartment complex to take no responsibility and excoriate the city's health department leadership. The other example was a much larger fall from grace guy named Vlad Tenev, in, who was in his early 30s and the CEO of Robinhood, a zero-fee stock trading platform that has attracted a lot of young investors but saw a major drop both in users and user sentiment when they controversially froze trading on a volatile stock. That's the GameStop stock, uh, which was being used as a battleground for this fight between retail investors supporting it and hedge funds trying to bet against it. Um, and the, the stop, the, the, the freezing on the accounts that Robinhood did came at this critical time that might have sealed the loss for retail investors when they were trying to really drive momentum to the stock and that um, would have uh, uh, potentially added uh, more to it and, and quote unquote broke the hedge funds resolve, um, it fell through. And so the issue was this $3 billion collateral call that Robinhood received that they, they did address, but um, it was based on this growing volume of trading on this volatile GameStop stock. And then Tenev went on national business television to claim that the company didn't have a liquidity issue and was instead protecting their customers. And um, let's just say that didn't go over well. And if you go look for um, uh, user reviews on uh, the Robinhood app online, uh, I've, I've heard actually that a bunch of them got deleted, um, but there still are uh, uh, many reviews that are against this company. So I've done a little crisis management in my day. And if I had two minutes with these guys, I don't think I would need two minutes. I would just say, just stop digging. People are too engaged and knowledgeable these days to be passed off with generalized or dismissive responses saying it wasn't our fault or I, I did everything that I was supposed to do and these other guys over here did wrong. You gotta level with them. You got to take some responsibility. You have to say, listen, here is what happened. Here is why we made the choices that we made. You know, decisions had to be made. We made them. Could we have done better? Sure. I can go through examples of what I think these guys should have done prior to getting into these crises. But the point is that once you get into that PR crisis situation, continuing to dig your hole further is the wrong way to go. And while it might require taking some lumps in the early rounds, if you level with them and tell them what's going on and why you did what you did and attempt to approach them as intelligent human beings, you're significantly more likely to be standing for the bell at the end. All right, Glenn, final thoughts. Anything you'd like to say until we meet again? Yeah, no, uh, appreciate the conversation. I'm gonna log off here and buy some GameStop stock based on your advice, so thanks for that. I, uh, I, have, I bought four shares, I did. Oh, no, you didn't. Did I you absolutely did. did, I absolutely did. I just wanted to say that I did. And so I put in sort of a low you know, limit bid in the or uh, limit order in the morning and uh, it got picked up and I was like, eh, maybe we'll see where it's gonna go. And it, 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 it quickly dropped like $30 a share. So, um, you know, but just to say I was part of it. Anyway, my final thought as always, be excellent to each other.
Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.